If you're anything like me, you ask yourself this question. How do the ultra-rich protect and grow their wealth without being trapped by banks, market volatility, government restrictions, fees, and taxes? You know that the wealthy have insider knowledge about where to put their money and how to make it grow for them on autopilot. For far too long, these secrets have been locked away in private family offices and boardrooms. This podcast reveals these secrets and makes wealth creation possible for all of us. My name is Sean Adams. Welcome to Wealth Secrets. Hey guys, just one more quick note before we jump into the show. I want to let you know that we have a YouTube channel that we've created specifically for our audience here at Wealth Secrets. We have a lot of questions that come in around financial literacy or expanding upon some of the topics that we cover on solo cast or with our guests. And so we created a YouTube channel where we break down smaller segments, things that didn't make the podcast, different cuts, as well as expanding on these different ideas in more detail. And we do whiteboard sessions and kind of trainings so you can take all this in. So if you go to our website, leverage-life.com, you can find more information about our YouTube channel or search Leveraged Life Management on YouTube to check out the channel. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another week, another episode of the Wealth Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Adams. I always appreciate hearing from you guys. Great to be able to put together another episode. This week, we have our first repeat guest, Mr. David C. Barnett. David, we had on episode 12 to talk about local investing and how private funding could be a great opportunity for some investors out there. In today's episode, we're unpacking a particular topic that's of interest to me, which is buying and selling small businesses. We talk about a multitude of different elements, both from the buyer side and the seller side, primarily focused on what an investor can look for in a small, what we call kind of boring, blue collar type of business or anything that would maybe be considered a brick and mortar or have the opportunity to have some improvement done to it. So we really unpack the opportunities that exist out there. There's a lot of aging business owners. There's a lot of what we call entrepreneurs that are stuck in the trap of being a technician, meaning that if they're a mechanic, let's say, they're stuck in the weeds of running their business instead of actually building a real company. They're working on the day-to-day and not scaling an organization. And they often feel trapped. They don't have the cash flow. They don't have all the things they need to actually get this to be a profitable enterprise. So David goes on to explain what to look for, where an investor can bring in some value-added resources, whether that is capital, maybe that's a skill set, business acumen or know-how, and how that can really help us to buy into a great source of cash flow. So this conversation was a, a really great one for me, really clarified a couple of different opportunities and ways to think about analyzing potential opportunities. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with David C. Barnett. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, it's great to be here. How are you? I'm doing great. You are our first repeat guest. So we're honored to have you back again. It's, it's always great to have you on the show. You must have run out of people to invite. We're cycling back through. Yes, it's getting good. <laughs> oh, thank you very much for thinking of me. Yes, you are an expert in many things. One of the ones that I personally have an interest in because I've been through the business buying and selling process myself. And uh, it, there's a lot to unpack, a lot of questions. I, I get asked often about it. And I think there's some opportunities that are out there. Lots and lots of misconceptions, though. And that's some of the things I want to unpack with you. Uh, we had sure. you on to talk about the kind of invest local side and some of the private you know, um, investing side of things. But I really want to unpack the business buying, the selling world, and kind of how a lot of that works. So before we get in, for anybody that didn't hear the first episode, can you give us like a 60-second just kind of recap of, of a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. You know, I've always had an interest in business, went to business school, got out of there, went and started selling advertising for the Yellow Pages, which is where I got my real small business education. Uh, because I went and spoke with the owners and managers of the businesses we see when we drive around in, the, in our cities and hometowns. And so I got to know those people. I knew that Yellow Pages was on its way out eventually and it, and got out. At first, I got into financing, helping small businesses obtain loans, leases, capital, that type of thing, which led to our conversation we had earlier. And then that financial crisis hit in 08, 09. And a lot of the lenders I was brokering money with went under because of that crisis. 
And so I made a pivot and I ended up joining a business brokerage office, which I later bought. And I was in that business for about three years and sold over 35 businesses for other people when I was in that business. Um, and business brokerage, Sean, is a terrible business. It's very exciting, but it's awful um, <laughs> because you're on this cash flow roller coaster. Because the you know when I was operating, I would charge business owners a small engagement fee, just a couple thousand dollars, and then I would work with them to get their business ready for sale. I would package it up, creating all the documentation that a buyer would look at, um, do an evaluation, and then I would market that business and I would try to find buyers. And sometimes it would take me a year to convince somebody that I'm the right person to sell their business. And then once I got it listed, it might take me, well, the longest one was the full run of my office ownership, three years. I listed a chicken franchise when I first got started and that was the last business I sold. So I had that file on my desk for three years and I spoke to dozens of buyers. I actually had three different deals put together, which two of them fell apart for one reason or another. And then the last deal came together. In fact, it was that that inconsistent cash flow that made me realize I needed to leave that industry. And just to highlight how bad a year my last year was. Now, but here's the thing is if you look at the financial statements of that business, every year you would have seen year over year income and earnings growth. Hmm. And it would have appeared as though it was a growing, thriving, successful business. But what was happening is every year I would have these long stretches of time with no deal closings. So I would just get into the red with the bank, credit cards, et cetera, and then I would close a deal and I would would fill those in. So in my last year, I had six deals that were set to close. They were going to bring me a quarter of a million dollars of commission income. And one deal fell apart because it was a franchise and the franchisors were a jerk to the buyer. Another deal fell apart because it was the, the bank that had issued a financing letter rescinded it. They changed their mind. They didn't want to do that deal anymore. And the third one was a government regulated industry where the government agency or department that was in charge of that service wouldn't issue a license to the buyer. Uh And my $250,000 of commission turned into about 110,000 and it was enough money for me to pay all my bills. And I took the money and I ran and I Mm -hmm. got out of that industry and I became a banker. And it was while I was doing banking that my cell phone started to ring and people were calling me up saying, Dave, I found this deal. Someone gave me your name. And it was just all these personal referrals that were coming in from my business brokerage days. And eventually I said to someone, look, I I don't do this anymore. I'm not a broker. I can help you, but I would have to charge you like a consultant and um, I have a full-time job. And they said, great, where do you live? I'll meet you on Saturday. And that was sort of the beginning of a new chapter in my life, which led to me being on YouTube and writing some of the books I've written, where I was just sort of working in a side hustle as a consultant, helping people do these buy and sell deals. And eventually I was restructured out of that banking role and it just became my full-time gig. Mm, Yeah. I love your perspective on this because you're coming from the brokerage side. So you got to see both ends of the spectrum. You had a small business background. You understand the inner workings of how these businesses work, but you also got to see the painstaking process of selling, the emotional side of uh, what, a, what a seller goes through, and then the buyer side of all the indecision and the you know, looky-loos and the people wasting time and how long these things really take. So before we get any further, let's talk about why would someone want to buy a business? It's pretty obvious why someone would want to sell. It's either, well, one that's unprofitable and they think they can get a quick one off on somebody or they're retiring. That's pretty obvious. I'm sure there's a couple other reasons, but let's look at the buyer side. Why would someone want to buy a business versus just creating their own? Well, you know, the number one reason why somebody wants to buy a business is just because you've already got a cash flow in place. The, the biggest risk of starting a business is that you will not reach your break-even point or you'll just reach the break-even point and you'll just kind of hang there at that point and never really make any money and time will go by and you've got personal guarantees on things like your lease and stuff like this. And this is why a lot of businesses will be kind of, you know, a lot of them fail in the first year, but the real eye-opening stats are how many fail after like five years because most commercial leases are five years. So somebody can lose money and be marginal and maybe just make a little bit of money. You know, somebody who left a hundred thousand dollar job to run their own business and they they're making 30 or 40 grand for themselves, but they signed a personal guarantee on a lease. 
and their spouse earns a good salary. So they're, they're able to eke it out and it's much more palatable just to get to the end of that lease and close things than it is to you know end it early and face maybe even getting sued by a landlord, right? No. And so, so there's a lot of risks in starting a business. Most people get into buying a business because they they realize that they've got something to lose. So, you know, the three main groups of people that I've noticed who go out to look to buy a business, number one are people who already own a business. So maybe they've been through a startup and they realize how how difficult it was, how much work it ended up really being, and how and they in hindsight they understand better what the risks they were taking. And they want to grow their business, but they don't necessarily want to start other locations or, or other businesses, they realize, you know, I can grow through acquisition much more easily. The second group would be the people who ended up in a career and they're sort of middle-aged. So they're like, you know, 40-ish or around there. And they want to be in business, but at this point in their life, they're married, they have a mortgage, they've got kids, maybe they're looking at college expenses in 10 years time. And they realize that they're just not in a position to take a risk that starting a new business might be. And so they will look at starting businesses and they'll they'll think about it a lot and they'll maybe even write business plans and they'll do work on it. But at the end of the day, they realize if they can't get the customers and they can't make the sales, they've got too much to lose. Yeah. And they will eventually come across the idea that, hey, instead of starting something, maybe I should just buy something that already has cash flow. And so that's sort of my second big group. And then my third big group of people that I meet are people who have been marginalized out of the workforce. And so these are people who maybe didn't go to college or maybe they're new to the country and they have some kind of language barrier and maybe they're credentialed in some kind of profession in another country, but their credentials aren't recognized in their new home. And so in order for them to kind of get the income level that they desire, they're going to have to get into ownership of a business, entrepreneurship being the great equalizer, you know, like if you're capable and and you do a good job managing the business that you have, you're going to be able to earn that income. Nobody's going to say, no, you can't you know, pay yourself that amount. It's really the last sort of vestiges of true meritocracy. Yeah. So I think that that sounds very sexy too. buying a business. It seems like we're sort of um, skipping some steps and like leveling up by just throwing some money at it, right? Putting some money forth and doing that. So let's unpack some of the signs to be aware of when we're looking at a business, because we were talking off air and having been through this process uh, of selling my business, I know how much you get scrutinized when you're, when the financials are in place. So let's look at as a buyer and I'm looking at sellable businesses, what are some of the things that I would look for? You mentioned like cash flow. Can you unpack that a little further? Yeah, sure. So the price someone is willing to pay is a function of the cash flow. Mm -hmm. Basically the conversation that somebody is having in their mind when they look at a business is very similar to what someone might think about if they're talking to a financial planner about buying an investment, right? They're thinking, if I put money in, how much do I get out? What am I going to get for my investment, right? And so they're going to look at a business and they're going to see something that is a lot riskier than putting money into a life insurance policy, right? Uh, Or maybe even a mutual fund. So the rate of return is going to have to be that much greater for them. And well, what exactly they're looking for, what that rate of return has to be, depends on the riskiness they perceive in that industry. So this is why, for example, a septic pumping business and a restaurant, if both of them had exactly the same cash flow, that septic pumping business would sell for more than the restaurant because the cash flow in the septic business is less risky than that identical cash flow in the restaurant because the restaurant business has much lower barriers to entry, customers are much more price sensitive, there's more competition, et cetera. Whereas in the septic pumping business, you've got these natural barriers to entry. You have a big capital investment in equipment. You probably need some kind of permits and licenses, uh, yeah. you know, all that other kind of stuff that makes it more difficult for somebody to come in and compete with you. And the customers only call you every couple of years, maybe, and can't even remember what you charged them last time. So there's less price sensitivity and all those other things. So the first thing is, what is a cash flow? And what's that cash flow worth to people? That determines the price. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that the buyer is then going to look at that and say, will I be able to continue or carry on having that cash flow with the business under my stewardship? And that's where people will see a really great business with a really great cash flow and then still not want to do a deal. Because that second question comes down to how well organized is the business And do I, as a buyer, believe that I'm going to be able to 
you know, pick up the reins and, and, and operate this thing? And am I going to have the skills? So one of the examples that I like to use, because it's a very simple one to, to sort of think about, is if you had a roofing business and you were replacing shingles on homes, let's say, and the seller, the owner of the business has 20 years experience and they kind of do everything. They order the materials, they schedule the crews, they get the materials delivered, they go out and they look at the houses, they quote the houses. If you've got tracked housing in a certain subdivision around a city that maybe the same builder built every house, that roofer is going to come and say, oh yeah, it's one of these. I, I did five of these last month. Here's your price, right? And, and so everything's kind of in their head. If I'm a buyer and I'm like working at the post office and I want to get into business and I come and see that. I'm going to feel as though I'm not going to be able to do what that owner does because yeah. I don't have the same kind of background and experience. So without systems and processes and procedures and, and, and all these tools in place, really the only buyer for that business is going to be someone else with roofing experience who maybe who's younger. And so when business owners take the time to sort of fill in all those other parts and, you know, like here's the Excel spreadsheet we developed all we do is we measure the roof. We put in all these numbers. It calculates the material. It estimates the labor. We know based on this how much it's going to cost to empty the dumpster at the landfill. Like here's all of our costing. Here's our margin we aimed for, you know, and, and this is how we quote. Well, now anyone can see that can use a tape measure can say, oh, yeah, you know, I could figure this out. I could go talk to people. I can use the spreadsheet. And I can do a proper job at costing these jobs and I'll be able to, to take care of this. And so then with all that effort put into how the businesses run, you can then expand the field of potential buyers. And what that is going to do is not necessarily allow you to sell it for more, although it could, but what it will do is it will increase the number of potential buyers, which will usually reduce the time it takes to find that right buyer. Yeah. We're talking systems and processes. We could make about three different episodes on that. It's a, it's a particular sweet spot for me. It's one thing I had to learn the hard way. I had a contracting business was the first company that I owned and learned the hard way, how important those things were. And when I got the siloed information out of my head and began to develop those systems and processes, built SOPs, I was able to kind of have a repository for how things got done in the business, a standard method for how they got done. Everything changed. I mean, it wasn't just like, hey, that helped and improved. It went from a very high paid job or a very expensive job, depending on which way you looked at it, to a business that actually was separate from myself. Not because I wanted to sell at any given moment, but I had the ability to if I wanted to. And there's a very big difference between that. And so that's talking from the, the seller side, you know, that you have to build those levels of business. But from the buyer side, those are the things that buyers are looking for. And that's what you should be looking for, the repeatability of something. You're buying kind of almost like the company's IP. You know, when you're a roofer, it's not really IP. Everybody measures the same way, but it's unique to you and those processes have inherent value to that organization. It's fundamental that they're in place. So I love that you said that. One thing that I want to bring up is the value gaps. As an investor, when I look at this, and I've talked to many, many different small businesses, I look at them and I can see that just with some effort focused on standardizing what they do, their business would be so much more valuable. But with that becomes a higher price tag often. So there's also an opportunity where you can can enter where if you have just enough subject matter expertise or just enough resources, you can buy a business kind of like a real estate opportunity with a value add opportunity, right? I can get it at a low price because they have no idea what the heck they're doing. They don't know what it's worth and no one else will take on the risk and they can actually purchase it for a lower price, put those processes in place. Now they've automatically raised the value there. Any, any thoughts or feedback? Yeah. Are you familiar with Michael Gerber's E-Myth Revisited yeah. book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can tell you that in my experience as a broker and in working with, you know, in all my consulting files in the you know years since, a lot of businesses that go up for sale are being put up for sale by what Gerber called the technician. So yep. again, the roofer knows how to do roofs, right? Not necessarily business professionals. They're, they, they know the trade, they know the skill, and they end up creating a business around it. Most of the buyers, though, are people who remember that second group of buyers I mentioned, that sort of middle-aged person who, you know, they've got something to lose. They, they want to buy something that already has a cash flow. A lot of those people are coming out of environments where they've been able to save some amount of money. So they have some net worth. 
they've got a home equity, they have a good credit score. And a lot of them are coming out of organizations like, like bigger businesses where they're part of that middle management where the policies, yep. procedures, and systems are a part of their everyday life. Or maybe it's somebody coming out of the military and the military is all about systems and procedures, right? And so typically it was a buyer who was looking at one of these businesses and they would bring some of those skills to the table. And it's not necessarily that they were able to, you know, increase the value. It's that by bringing those systems, they were able to grow the business, which in turn would increase the value. So I always, I use the example of an auto repair business. If you can think about the mechanic who starts fixing cars, he gets busy. So he hires somebody else to work on cars and then he hires a third person to work on cars. But the first guy is still answering the phone, ordering the parts, meeting the yellow page guy once a year, like greeting people at the front counter, like the owner is still trying to do everything. What I often say is that the difference between a small business and a big business is in a small business, owners delegate tasks like, hey, take that car and replace the brakes. Whereas in a big business, owners delegate responsibility. So you are now responsible for this area of the business. Mm-hmm. And I will come and I will look at what you're doing and we'll have some numbers that we track you by so we know you're performing, but they let go of part of those things. And so when that new owner takes over the auto repair business, what they're willing to do is they're willing to take a step back and they're willing to empower people to do things. And now they can hire a front desk person and let them order parts and greet the customers. And now they can start to add technician four, five, and six and they can start to really grow the business because they're more willing to let go of things. A lot of businesses are started by technicians who are real, you know, perfectionists and they're they're skilled people who want things done a certain way. And as you know, Sean, from being in business, sometimes done is better than perfect. And sometimes other people are going to do things in a way that is not quite to the standard that we would do them, but it's it's okay, right? And sometimes people surprise you when you give them something and they come up with ways of doing things that are completely beyond what you ever would have imagined. And, you know, sometimes they're bringing experience from past roles that they've had at other companies and other things that they've done in other places. And so it's that willingness to, to empower people and let them be a part of contributing to how things are run. I find that allows things to, to expand the, the owner who wants to make it every last decision is never going to be able to go on vacation. And they're never going to be able to grow beyond a certain size. Uh, we always talk about how the, the ego comes in, in there, right? Because they have a learned set of experiences and skill sets, and it becomes part of their identity. And so when they build this business around them as the kind of hub and spoke model, it, they take such pride in the work that they do. And so they kind of want to hold it over everybody else, right? So it's this ability, when you look in the marketplace and there's a roofer that does a half a million dollars a year in revenue, and a guy right down the street, exact same market, exact same customer base, and he does $15 million a year, you recognize that there's a shift between where the focus is. It's not mm-hmm. on putting the technician and the, the shingle up properly. It's really on building a real business and something scalable um, and, and the systems and processes. So yeah, couldn't agree more. I love that thought about the small business versus big business, focusing on the, the responsibility versus the task, because you're always going to be in that loop of just shelving out the next task for someone to do. That's that's really powerful. Well, well, here's, you know, I know that we've been using the word business, but I, I like to define it because, you know, people talk about corporations, companies, businesses, like they talk about these things all the time. But um, the way I define a business is a business itself is simply a system where people, capital in the form of money, inventory, machinery, equipment, come together in a place. So those three things, people, capital, and a place come together in a system that produces a cash flow. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking, like some people will say, well, I bought a business and, and this was the scenario, but it didn't make any money. I'll say, no, that wasn't a business according to my definition. That was a collection of assets that you you know picked up cheap or whatever, because mm-hmm. it doesn't have that positive cash flow correlated with it. And so if you think about any business, like you know that auto repair shop, if you had a place where people just showed up every day and everyone was left to do whatever they want. And, you know, one guy said, well, I'm going to go find customers. Another person said, I'm going to take apart that car. And another person said, I'm going to change the order that the, you know, the batteries are in our inventory. Like nothing would happen. Nothing would, you know, it would just end up failing very quickly. 
everyone shows up and they've got a certain role and there's certain things they're supposed to be doing and people interact with each other and they interact with things with the outside organisms like the suppliers and the customers and everything else. And that system has to be functioning well enough that you produce that cash flow. And so when people buy a business, now in their heads, they think about, you know, to, to carry the automobile analogy, the auto repair shop, they think about the hoists and the tools and the lift in that shop. But really, when you buy a business, you're buying the system that's flowing there. And this is, this is the reason for that second question that I mentioned, is that people will understand this before they get to the closing table. Because as they're laying in bed at night and on the approach to closing day, they're going to realize more and more that what they're buying, uh, if it's a profitable business, will have a price higher than the value of the stuff. That's what's called goodwill. So goodwill is an accounting term. It simply means the difference between what you paid for the business and the value of the tangible stuff that you got when you bought the business. And so that goodwill is very fragile. If you want to think about a pizza shop, you know, you could have a successful pizzeria and all the people in the neighborhood like to go there. And if you buy it and you, you know, paid a price higher than the value of the oven and the empty boxes in the back room, and then you change the sauce recipe on the day you get there. And all of a sudden the neighborhood folks don't like it anymore. In one day, you just destroyed all the goodwill. Mm. It's, and now people don't want to buy the pizza. And so this is the fragility of a business. And this is why that whole question about whether it's going to carry on under my stewardship is so important. And when we talk about deals, a lot of the deal making is about building relationships, the psychology, the confidence, et cetera, because there are a lot of things that sellers do that will help that buyer feel more or less confident in going forward and doing the deal. And that's mm. a large part of what happens when we're talking about these deals that are happening. We'll be right back to the show with a quick message from this week's sponsors. What do the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, the Waltons, and the Disney families all have in common? Well, besides being among the wealthiest people in human history, they know about this best kept secret that allows their money to grow guaranteed, 100% tax-free, with no market volatility or exposure, all while being protected from creditors, bankruptcy, and even lawsuits. This secret is called a leveraged wealth account. These are very specifically designed accounts that use life insurance as a savings asset to warehouse and protect your cash. Think of it like a supercharged savings account that gives you all the benefits of using your money however you want, while at the same time not sacrificing the guaranteed growth on your funds. Yes, you heard that correctly. You get to use your money in two places at once. We put together a webinar and some free resources on our website about how this strategy works and how you can set one up for yourself. Go to leveraged-life.com. That's leveraged-life.com to learn more. Yeah, I love that systematic approach of really looking at the pieces of the business kind of unemotionally recognizing the you know, the capital, the assets, what, what's going into it and, and what's you know, some of the intangible pieces there, where the real value sits. With that goodwill piece, can you unpack that a little bit? I know there's no broad formula per se, but when we're looking at purchasing a business that spits off a cash flow, I know you've used some metrics in the past I've heard on mm. your show, kind of how they value it, what they can kind of expect when you're looking at purchasing a small business. Yeah, sure. So, so a lot of really small businesses, you know, might sell for a multiple of of seller's discretionary earnings, which is the total cash flow available to an owner operator that works full time. So we take the the P and L and we look at that profit, and then if it's an entity that where the owner's wages appear as an expense, like if it was a C corp, for example, where the owner has a W two, we add that back in. We add back any depreciation, amortization, interest on loans. Because the and the taxes, because those things to a certain degree are discretionary. The owner makes different decisions in their business that affects the outcome of those figures. So we add those things back. If the teenage daughter has a company cell phone, then we add that one back too, because it's not really a business expense, right? And so we get this seller's discretionary earnings. And then the buyer looks at that number and they go, from that figure, I need to pay myself for my time I'm going to spend here. I need to service my debt. I'm going to have to pay the taxes. And you know what their debt service is, is going to be different because their position as far as how they borrow money is going to be in a, in a different than maybe the, the person who owns a business today, right? If they're going to get a really great interest rate from their participating whole life insurance policy, for example, then that, you know they're going to figure that in. Yeah. And so 
that multiplier tends to be a very unexciting number for sellers. In fact, almost every time I show business owners what their business might sell for, they usually look at it and go, well, why would I do that? I could just stick around for a few more years and I'd have that money and still own it. And they're absolutely correct. The fact is that these small businesses, because you're largely buying a system, you know, how to run the day-to-day and because small businesses can be affected so easily by competition, government regulation, unforeseen events like global pandemics, right? The, the risks are huge. And so that rate of return that buyers demand is quite high, which means that the price that is paid relative to that cash flow is, is pretty low. And so you mentioned earlier, you know, why do people sell businesses? There's five top reasons. The first one is burnout and fatigue. So they've been running this business for a long time and now they're sick of it. And they realize that they need to sell it before their attitude starts to have an impact on how the employees and the customers are behaving in this system. Another one is divorce, then there's poor health. The need to relocate is an increasingly common one. So if you can imagine a married couple, one of them owns a business that's successful. The other one is like a highly paid individual, like an executive or a surgeon or a military officer or something like this. If if the employed person is getting more money in their job and gets transferred, well, the couple wants to stay together. That business will go up for sale. And so that is another reason why businesses can sell. The last reason, number five, is retirement. And so of those five reasons, only one of them is really ever planned for, the retirement. The other ones are life instances that occur that people all of a sudden, now they want to sell their business because they realize they can't run it for the next few years to get that money they talked about. And so the decision's kind of being made for them, which means that often time becomes a critical thing. So it's, it's how do I sell this business? How do I get a fair price? And how do I make all of this come together in short order? Because this life circumstance now has changed for me and I need to move on to the next chapter of my life. And so, so that, that multiplier is like in sometimes in the mid two range. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe it's like 2.2 times. Now you asked about goodwill. So, so let's think about two businesses that have a hundred thousand dollars of SDE and let's assume that both of these industries are going to sell for the same multiple 2.2. Well, if one of them is a food court restaurant in a shopping mall, right? And another one is like a roofing company, right? That food court restaurant might have some kitchen equipment and a lot of leaseholds. They made improvements to the place. They decorated it. They have, you know, signage and that kind of thing. But really there's not much there in the way of tangible objects that you could take away, right? That Roofer, though, he's got some trucks. Maybe he owns his own uh, waste bin, like dumpster bin. He's got a lot more tools and equipment. So both of those businesses could be earning their owners hundred grand. They could both be worth 220000 a year, but the roofer might have $100,000 worth of stuff in his business, and that food court restaurant might only have $50,000 worth of stuff. What that means is if people are willing to pay two hundred twenty dollars for both of those, it means that the roofer's got $120,000 of goodwill in his business, And the food court guy's got 170,000 in his because all the goodwill is, is the difference between what someone will pay for the cash flow and the value of stuff in the business. And so the more asset intensive the business is, the less goodwill there's going to be because really it's the cash flow that's being purchased. And that's the, it's an offsetting entry on the balance sheet of the acquirer. So when, when the buyer buys that roofing company in the example, his accountant will say, well, what did you buy? A roofing business. Well, what did you get? Well, we got some trucks and things, and that's worth a hundred grand. So the accountant's going to put a hundred thousand dollars on your opening balance sheet of your new company. And so then where does he put the other 120? Right. Well, that extra money represents the fact that the name is known around town, and you've got all these past customers sharing your phone number, talking about the good service, and you've got a you know a hundred Yelp reviews and a hundred Google reviews and all that kind of thing. And and so when, when people talk about goodwill, that literally is what it is. Here, here's how I see it misapplied. People will think that they take the cash flow of their business and multiply that by a certain number to equal the goodwill. And then they want to add up the value of all their stuff and their inventory. And, and then they want to add that on top. And I've believe me, I've seen all kinds of crazy things out there that people will try to justify in their own minds to make that number as high as possible. The craziest example I ever saw 
was this uh, security company, and they had contorted several different valuation methodologies into one. They basically had a business that had about $100,000 of cash flow. They, they were trying to justify $950,000 asking price. And I pointed out that they had given themselves a stock market valuation. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and, and here's the big difference between businesses on the stock market and, and small businesses. Well, there's two really, uh, liquidity and leadership. So when you buy shares in the telephone company, you get to participate in the fact that the leadership of that organization has been there. They know what they're doing. They have a plan, et cetera. And any day you want that the stock market's open, you can sell those shares. Mm-hmm. So you've got this ease of entry and exit into your investment, and you really don't have to do anything. When you buy a small business, the leadership is leaving. I mean, the, the big brain trust, the leadership, all the experience is departing. Yeah. And you are trying to step in and take that position a lot of the time. Even when people talk about buying a business and they say, oh, I'm going to buy a business, I'm going to put a manager in place. Well, that, you know, that is a goal that a lot of people have. From my own experience, if you want to try to pull that off, you need to go in there and you need to learn that job. Because if you don't know what the job of managing that business is going to be, then you can't put the systems of oversight in. And so this, this is something I've talked about in one of my YouTube videos is, um, you know, if you think about a business like a chain business, you know, like if there's a whole bunch of like uh, Exxon gas stations around you, for example, well, each one has a store manager, but that manager doesn't make all the decisions and then report his financials to the head office once a year. You know, that store manager has certain roles, but then that person is reporting to the regional manager who maybe has 20 or 30 locations under them. And that regional manager, they're looking at the results of each location and they're making sure that the stores are being run properly. And if they see a problem, they're going to talk with the manager of that location. And so if you're going to buy a business and then have someone else manage it, you need to develop the competency of that regional manager of oversight, of looking at what's going on in the business and knowing what questions to ask and what numbers to be looking at. Because if you just walk away and wait for the annual report, well, that might be ready for you sometime in the spring based on December's numbers. And if there's a problem, you're already 14 months behind. Yeah, it's it's such a great point. It might sound like we are, you know, kind of raking this concept over the coals, but it's it's for good reason on both sides, right? So as an investor, if I'm looking at these opportunities, there's a lot to consider and it's not as simple as, it's a very active investment, right? This is not putting your money into a real estate syndication and getting your 9% annual you know, rate of return. It's much, much different than that. There's plenty of upside potential. There's a lot that can be gained, but the hands-on nature is there. So yeah. I, I will often describe many business buyers as wearing two different hats. They're wearing an investor hat and a job seeker hat because they're making an investment and acquiring a job a lot of the times at the same time, because they're going to end up being the person that runs the day-to-day. Now, those business owners who already own businesses that are looking to grow through acquisition, they're in a little bit of a different scenario. They might, you know, let's say a roofer in another city or the next county wants to buy that roofing company. Mm-hmm. They, they're going to put someone in charge, but they understand the business inside and out already. They already know how to run a roofing company. Yeah. So it's easier for them to have that regional manager competency right off the hop because they're already running a similar business in their other market. Right. They have subject matter expertise and in all actuality, they should have some systems and processes that can be yeah. sort of templatized to the next the business they buy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what types of industries do you like or what things would you look for as an investor? Do you look for opportunities where we're buying like a list of customers. So by that, I mean someone like uh, like an irrigation contractor who has like repeat contracts. They're getting a certain amount every single year. And, and those businesses tend to, 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 you know, have a good multiple because there's some guaranteed revenue in place. It, it, what sorts of, of industries or thing, other things do you look for in more traditional, maybe blue collar businesses doesn't have to be, but something that you know, there's opportunity to get in, maybe spend a year or two, get those management systems in place. And then there's going to be some, some automation that can help take over and it can become a little bit more passive at least. Yeah. I, I always tell everyone, focus on the competency that you can bring. So if somebody has a sales background, look for a business that is doing well and making money and the sales are not being executed properly. Mm. Right. Like a lot of the times people will, will get their analytical hat on and they'll see a problem in the business and they'll think that that's a reason not to buy it. 
I say you cherish the problems. You want to find a business that has a positive cash flow that is a real business that is making money and is full of problems that you happen to know how to fix. Mm. Because then you can acquire that business and then you can set about fixing the problems. So underutilized assets, you know, I'll tell you all kinds of buyers that I work with find businesses where they have deep customer information. They've got customer sales information for 10 years and they've got people's addresses. They've got their phone numbers. They've got their emails and they never reach out to them ever. Right. And so to me, that's an underutilized asset. You have this, you know, record of who has acquired your product or service. One of the questions that I will ask is, well, when are they due? So one guy that I know came out of a, a factory setting, his family owned the business, they sold it. They bought a flower shop, a retail flower shop, and they went about setting it up like their factory. So if somebody came, if somebody called in an order for Valentine's day or for their spouse's birthday or something like that, it would all go in the computer. And then the following year, like seven or 10 days before their spouse's birthday, the store would call them mm, and yeah. say, Hey, your, your wife's birthday is coming up. Did you want to get her flowers this year? We have this new thing. This great new, you know, popular new thing. Did you want that? And of course, you know, the person on the other end of the phone is like, Oh, you're going to solve the birthday problem for me. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Right. And, and so they were able to increase the repeat sales by creating a system. Right. And you know, the other question that I will challenge people with is what else do the customers of this business need? And so if you're, you know, building something or you're, you know, cleaning something or you're doing any kind of regular maintenance or repair, if that would lend itself to something else. So this is why, you know, you get the pool contractor who will get into installing, uh, you know, like awnings and shades mm-hmm. and or, or other things that happen to go with creating an outdoor experience in someone's backyard. Because once they identify who's investing money in their backyard and they, you know, did one part of it, well, then they know, okay, here's someone that is interested in this kind of thing. They want to make their, their private oasis really nice. And they know us. And they know that we can deliver on time and that we do good work, et cetera. And so it's going to be theoretically an easier sale, right? It's brilliant to look for the problems because it's one of those things that people will look at. It's like a piece of real estate. You know, we, we look at that and we go, oh, yes, but it needs a new roof and it's got terrible curb appeal. The investor, their face lights up. They start seeing dollar signs because they're like a forced appreciation. That's where I can differentiate and make up additionally if I can buy correctly, right? Same exact idea. It doesn't have to be, you know, just any old problem. Ideally, something aligns with your skill set, your know how, or some other resource that you happen to have insider knowledge of something, uh, you know, a family member, a friend, whatever that might be. That's the differentiator that's there. I think that's so, so important. It's not just you should buy laundromats because they profit well or they, they cash flow well. They, they very well may, but what is that unique proposition you can bring to the table? I think that's super, super powerful advice. I'm also a big fan of getting paid to develop expertise. So I'll give you, a, you know, remember that chicken franchise I told you about that took me three years to sell? It was very profitable. And I got a lot of people that came in to look at that, people that worked with the power company, people who worked for the government, people who worked for the banks. And I always always ask them the same question. Have you ever worked in any kind of fast food environment? And most of them had said no. And I said, well, you know, do you know what it's going to be like in here in the day-to-day? And when we would meet with the seller, the seller would show where he'd been burned by hot grease from the French fry machines. And he would show where he had been cut by the, like the French fry chopper, like because only he would clean the blades on that because he didn't want to risk a workplace compensation claim, right? And But he had been cut by the machine, right? And so he would show these people like literally the scars of the chicken business. And a lot of the times people would then step back and realize it's not a Scrooge McDuck swim in your money kind of day. It's, it, it is real work when you own this kind of business. And so I would say to people, like, if you're interested in buying a fast food restaurant, go to your local McDonald's and tell them you're willing to work on Saturday night and they'll hire you. Like, no question, they they will just hire you because even the teenagers don't want to work on Saturday night. And you can get paid to see what it's like to be in that kind of environment. And you can gain an understanding of whether or not you want to be doing that. And so as I would go through these different experiences with potential buyers, I began to realize that there were certain things that would cause deals to go astray that had to do with self-image. I don't know if you've ever read Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Uh, people have an idea of who they are, right? 
So again, with the chicken franchise, I would start to ask people questions like, have you ever worked in a business like this? And then I would say, you know, when you meet your buddies in the summertime at the golf course and you're introduced to some other person, are you going to be able to proudly say that you own the chicken place? Or does that not quite align with who you feel that you are, right? Yeah. As an individual, because there, there has to be congruency. You have to dive into this full strength and be full of energy because if you're not there hundred percent, then your lack of enthusiasm will quickly rub off onto the people that work for you and in turn on the clientele. And we've all yeah, been in a business where you can tell people are not excited to be there. Oh yeah. It's, it's not a place you want to go spend your money. Yeah. It's contagious in both, in both elements, whether it's positive or negative for sure. Yeah. I've, I've experienced that firsthand. That's really, really solid advice all the way around. So David, I think we've identified some some great ways, things to look for, other opportunities that, that are out there in the business buying world. Any last thoughts on where we might find these? Obviously, you know, just like in any other investment class that we're searching for, maybe they're listed, maybe they're through a broker, probably not always the best channel to go through. But what else do you suggest for people to start to identify potential businesses that may be where they could place in some of that value add where their expertise might be able to, to really help increase that and, and something they might want to take over. Yeah. So, you know, there's pros and cons to looking at those marketplaces online uh, that have businesses for sale. If it's a good business and it's priced right, it won't last. And so the ones that tend to linger on there tend to have, there's an issue with them largely. Um, either they're asking too much money or, or there's something else going on. But the the place that I always recommend people start is through introspection and doing a self-analysis. So what is your experience? Where have you worked? What do you know? What do you know that you don't know, right? What are your strengths? And so you create a list and then you go to some kind of comprehensive list of business types. I used to recommend people grab a yellow pages, but they're getting more and more scarce. But uh, you can often go online and find like government listings for different industry types, mm -hmm. uh, the SIC codes, for example, or the NAICS codes. And you can go through that list and you can just start to think about these different businesses and think, you know, would this business be something that I'm interested in that would take advantage of my strengths, my skills, my abilities? And you can often create a list of business types or industries that you may not even have thought of that you might realize, you know what, I might be suited to this. Mm -hmm. and, and then you can go and start to look at how many of them are around. And that all it takes is some Googling uh, or, you know, looking up different online databases and see how many there are. And if you're serious, you can start to reach out to these people and create relationships. You know, business brokers get their listings by contacting business owners, just saying, if you're ready to sell, give me a call. And, you know, I can help you sell your business. Everyone who owns a business knows that if they go to a business broker, they're going to end up paying a fee for that service. And so if they meet somebody who wants to buy their business before they get to that point, then you may have an opportunity to talk with that business owner about making a deal before other buyers are able to get there and create that buyer competition. So I think it starts with a self-introspection and then a decision about what industries are right. That's some of the work that I do. I have some coaching pro a coaching program where I do this with people. And it's interesting because oftentimes people will identify things they've never even heard of before. So I had one fellow who was in my group and he was from Tennessee. And he had always worked in sales and he also had a technology interest. And he kind of thought that that meant that he needed to buy a business that made a certain kind of product. And, and I actually directed him to becoming like a manufacturer's agent. And, you know, I'm like, you could do the sales function without having to worry about making it or even delivering it or even distributing it. Right. There's, there's all kinds of other ways that you could take your sales background and you could use that for different types of businesses. Now, if he didn't end up buying a business like that, but it was a very fruitful exercise for him because he learned about that industry. It was a good fit. He talked with people that already owned businesses in that industry and he even found uh, a, a law firm that was kind of like a specialist in that category. And he was able to talk to one of the attorneys there who opened his eyes to a whole bunch of other things that he needed to consider if he was going to buy that kind of business. And that industry research is really going to pay dividends if you want to buy a business, because the, the deeper you can get into understanding a specific industry, the faster you're going to be able to triage your way through an opportunity that comes your way. 
So another client of mine who's in this program, he's in the language translation service services, and he's done a couple of acquisitions already. And he now is able in under an hour to basically slice his way through a set of financials for a translation business and know whether or not he's interested in pursuing it or not, because he's now looked at like dozens of them yeah. uh, and he's got a pretty good idea of what they should look like. And one of the traps you can fall into is if you're not sure what you want and you kind of do the window shopping method where you kind of look at what's for sale, what's listed online, and you're looking at one business after another and they're all very different, is you have to restart the clock on every one of those industries when you start to look at it. And then and you have to kind of cover that learning curve each and every time. And really your most valuable resource as an investor, as a business person, is your time. Yeah. You know, you, you can spin your wheels and waste a lot of time and you, you can never get it back. Big time. Yeah. It sounds like that introspection exercise would be a good thing to do regardless of what's going on, just from an investor perspective to understand what things intrigue you, what are you attracted to, where do your skill sets align or overlap, where the gaps are. Uh, just really solid advice all the way around. I really love that element. I'm sure that's piqued a few people's interest in, in maybe getting a, a second set of eyes on some opportunities they've been looking at or just different ways they want to explore this further. So David, for those, what's the best way for them to follow you, get in contact with you? Talk a little bit about your programs and offerings. Yeah, sure. So uh, if anyone goes over to davidcbarnett.com, that's my blog site. That's like the central nervous center of everything. I've got different online courses and books that I've written and coaching programs. But really, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, you should find me on YouTube or any of the audio feeds. Uh, every week, I put out a new video where I answer a question that was submitted by a viewer. And I've been doing it since 2014. So there's hundreds and hundreds of videos on these topics. And I also get into some deeper stuff. I have guests on my channel sometimes where we get into it uh, a little bit deeper into specific topics. And so, yeah, come over and, and drink your fill. It's, it's all free content. And then if you want to learn more, you want to get deeper into it, or if you want to do some one-on-one -on -one work with me, then, uh, then I'm available to you as well. Yeah, love that. We'll link to everything in the show notes, guys. David is a wealth of knowledge here. That's how I found him initially. I was poking around, looking at a few things, found his content and was like, my goodness, there's just an endless supply of it. And it's really, really good information, great advice. So David, with all that said, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate you uh, unpacking the second topic for us. I'm sure there'll be more in the future. Thanks again for being here. No problem. I'm looking forward to being the, uh, the first person to come back for a third time. <laughs> I love it. That's a good record to break. <laughs> all right, Sean, have a good night. Thanks. Hey guys, it's Sean again. Just one last thing before you take off. If you got any value out of this episode at all, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing a quick review about what you got out of the episode here on Apple Podcast. It would mean the world to us. It helps us rank higher in the search engines and spread our message of wealth creation out there to the masses. Thanks so much.